think, do you wonder ever you're a bad man? No, I don't wonder, Marty. World needs bad men. We keep the other bad men from the door. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. And I'm Matt. And this is episode number 34, True Detective, season 1, part 1. Alright, um, before we get into the show, I think we should go ahead and... Uh, My favorite part. <laughs> apologize to our listeners <laughs> for just like the length of some of our recent episodes. Yeah, we really got carried away there. Yeah, We're I mean, going to reel it back in. It got away from us for a little bit. Hopefully, you know. We let passion drive us a little <laughs> bit too much. I mean, I'm sure some of our listeners right now are thinking, what are you talking about? It's great. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I think, like, ideally we'd like to try to keep these around an hour. I mean, you know, go for a run, listen to an episode, <laughs> run like 26 <laughs> miles to get done with it, but... <laughs> yeah, um... So, you know, I think the next couple will be a little shorter. No more. (laughs) Go ahead. No more long eps from here on out. Only short eps. Well, that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know that is not going to happen. Right. Uh, Just in case we ever, you know, do what we did with the She's the Man episode. Yeah. I mean, it really went over well, so (laughs) I don't see why we wouldn't do it again. But yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging in there on the long apps. We appreciate it. Yeah. We appreciate all the feedback we've been getting. Yeah, we'll start <laughs> cutting a lot of this nonsense out, and we'll just get right to it to keep the episodes nice and tight. <laughs> well, probably not. Yeah. We wanted to do uh, True Detective, uh, the HBO, I don't know what you would even call it. I uh, guess. An anthology series is yeah. what it's referred to as, yeah. It's an anthology series. They've only done two seasons. Not really clear if they're going to be doing a third one or not. Which um, makes it like a really weird anthology. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, <laughs> we'll, we'll certainly get to that. We'll but. get to that later. But it was kind of hard. Like We couldn't really narrow it down to like one episode. Especially with a show like this. Oh, yeah. Kind of impossible. It's just like to so just many elements. Pick one episode and try to talk about it. Um, plus, we've had kind of mixed results when we've done that. Oh, just doing one episode yeah, of a show. Yeah, just like a random yeah, episode it's hard. of a show. It's hard to talk about just an episode of the show because there's so much that goes into like any character or any scene that 
it's hard to get the payoff out of one episode. And plus, you want to talk about stuff that happened outside of the episode, which, you know, we are wont to do. Yeah, I mean, as always, I wouldn't say it's, like, necessarily a requirement to have seen what we're talking about. But for something like this, it's probably highly recommended. And if, I mean, I think it goes without saying that we're going to be spoiling the shit out of this. Oh, yeah. there's not. We're not going to be able to get around this. I mean, I'm sure you heard me when I did the... Uh, title of the episode part one clearly we're going to be talking about this a lot so (laughs) and i'll say this you know just going through and watching it again these past few days it's like the replay value of this first season of the show is like a lot higher than i originally even thought like i loved it the first time i watched it but honestly watching it the second time it made so much more sense because it was so trying to follow the details of the case on like a week-to-week basis was just like you just lose so many parts of it. Yeah, this is a dense work of fiction that carries a whole lot of weight in terms of just references, uh, little side narratives, uh, different themes, different symbolism. And it feels like a big production, too. I mean, just like the cinematography and you know, movie stars are in it. It just feels like such a massive thing. Yeah, and I mean, as far as like television goes, it's clearly the closest to cinema that television can get. Well, especially having one director, which is basic, almost unprecedented in television, to have one person direct every episode of something. Yeah, I think we should try to address this now. How do we pronounce the name of the <laughs> writer slash showrunner and director? Uh, so the writer Nick. Pizzolotto, P- is that yeah, Pizzolotto, and Carrie Fukunawa. I don't know. <laughs> Fukunaga. <laughs> yeah, <I>, Fukinaga. <laughs> yeah, because we're probably gonna have to reference them from time to time, and <laughs> we—it's really <laughs> just the writer and the director. <laughs> yeah, you know, just so just bear with our pronunciations yeah. of those names. Don't uh, worry about it. <laughs> Let us worry about that. Okay, so True Detective aired when was that early 2014? Oh, that sounds right. On HBO, it was an eight-episode um, miniseries, basically. Yeah. I mean, as we said, it's an anthology but, thing. But yeah. <laughs> it's an anthology show, but one season of it is really a miniseries. Yeah, it's not like American Horror Story in that they recast a lot of the same people in different roles every year. It's... Um, you know, kind of a one-off with right. these yeah. actors and these characters and everything. And then season two was like a whole completely different story with different actors and everything. Uh, so in this one, we have uh, Matthew McConaughey playing uh, Rust Cole. Unbelievable. Skinny as a rail. Well, yeah, he was... The timing of this was around when he was like filming uh, or right maybe right after he filmed like Dallas Buyers Club. I oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you kind of referenced before... I think this is like important to address <laughs> Matthew McConaughey's like crazy career change around this time period, like starting with like Killer Joe and some of these other roles, Lincoln Lawyer, including going into uh, the lead in Interstellar. Yeah, he got the lead in Interstellar, I think, from possibly Lincoln Lawyer or something. It's kind of strange. Like he definitely had this career shift. Yeah, I mean, my first memory of him because I didn't see Days and Confused until like later in life. But so my first experience with him was The Wedding Planner. 
<laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely had. And then a, he had like a romantic comedy run. Yeah, a run of just shit. And then he just decided to be in like good movies. Like he's in like Mud and uh, The Paperboy and. Oh, yeah. The Paperboy. Jeez. Just like tons of <laughs> off the wall kind of stuff. Really showing off the acting chops. And then he, you know, eventually won the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. So then we got him. He plays Russ Cole, Woody Harrelson playing uh, Martin Hart. Which, first of all, let's go with these character names right away. It's like Russ Cole and, I mean, for, for nickname, Marty Hart. <laughs> I mean, well, I guess some people like say like... The light in the dark, though, huh? Like Yeah, Russ some Cole. people say that that's like supposed to be a play on like the type of people that they are. Yeah. Uh, like, Marty's like way more um, emotive and like things yeah. with his heart and right. that kind of thing and Russ Cole is like more dark edgy yeah like gritty and real um some think it's like a play on like heart and soul yeah something because of the way that the names almost sound really? I mean there's a lot of different things with the names it's like good afternoon I'm a detective Rust Cole <laughs> I'd be like really that's your name he's like oh this is my partner detective Marty Hart <laughs> <laughs> Well, in 95, uh, they are a couple of uh, homicide detectives. They're partners. Uh, they catch a case that kind of spirals Do we into get, this big thing. Yeah. Do we get like a scene of them kind of being put together, or are they already like partners as the show starts off? They're already partners. Um, I but think it feels like it's a fairly recent thing, right? Yeah, they reference to know that, each other. That. Uh, Cole had only been there for a couple of months before this all goes down. Right. Um, the way that the show is set up, we kind of flash between what happens in 1995 when they're investigating a murder and then they're being interviewed by a couple of other detectives in 2012. Uh, Pap- Papania? Papania? Uh, and I think it's Papania I think and Gilbro. The, the one dude is like the guy with the glasses, like the... Ki- from the wire like yeah that helps uh kill stringer spoiler (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah so that's like one of the cool things i mean the marketing for this show very heavy on like the flash forwards and flashback things it's like you see like a young kind of like good looking mcconaughey and then you see these scenes of him that's just like this stringy like hair just looking like shit (laughs) kind of looks hollow behind his eyes yeah kind of telling these ominous stories like that, yeah. I mean, that it, it's kind of just like um, evident of like the toll that what Hart and Cole are being interviewed about has right. taken on Cole. Uh, and I mean, this case, this particular case, which you know springboards the whole story, that it, it kind of greatly affects both characters in a way that they they haven't been able to shake. You know, uh, seventeen years later. Um, so basically. Uh, at the beginning of the first episode, we kind of get this murder scene of the uh, ritualistic killing of a prostitute who ends up being named Dora Lang. She's found nude with a spiral symbol painted on her back, and she's wearing a makeshift crown of deer antlers, and she's blindfolded and posed as if she's we're praying to a uh, large tree in the middle of a field. Yeah, and I, I feel like as a detective, the first question to your partner would be like, well, what do you make of this? 
<laughs> you don't see that very often. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear right away that this murder is one of two things. Either a ritualistic sacrifice by some sort of person or cult or some the work sort of, of a meticulous serial killer. Right. So it, they kind of know right away that this is... Uh, a pretty big deal or like an elaborate performance art piece <laughs> well yeah i mean it kind of is well, yeah. really right they also find some blair witch-esque twig lattice work around these little which has triangle like symbols. incredible staying power i mean yeah those things can apparently survive years of environmental damage <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, that, that'll that be like a recurring thing. And one of the big things in the show is symbolism, and we'll see a lot of the same stuff pop up again and again and again, sometimes in different forms or variations. They kind of have this just a, a clear-cut whodunit. Um, it's not like the ob- like most murders, I think, you know, are solved pretty quickly. Yeah. It's usually pretty obvious. Um, a lot of t- I think... Most people are DNA murdered. evidence. Most people are murdered by someone that they know, you know, a husband and wife kind of thing or something like that. Just you know, yeah. that's the majority of murders, really, and just you know, a good reason to get married. In this, <laughs> in this situation, like uh, you know, there's really no clear answer as to who who it might be. So I mean, they they kind of have to start doing like the footwork of like actual detectives. Like they're right. going to have to like work it, work this case. Cause there's really no easy answer. And it kind of leads them down this trail, which will be like the, the course of, you know, which will take the show in all the different directions as they try to piece this all together. They kind of like uncover, you know, something much bigger than just one murder. So for this part one, I think we should talk about, um, some of the early ideas presented by True Detective. Pretty early on, we get a connection of religion, uh, deep Southern kind of, Southern-based kind of conservative um, Protestant religion. Uh, we find out that Dora Lang uh, kind of attended one of these revival-type churches. Yeah, which have kind of a creepy aura to them in general. Yeah, because they're done kind of, I mean... You a know, lot of the religious think, stuff is weird in this. Yeah, like, I mean, I think dark. like some people might perceive this as like an indictment of Christianity in general, and I don't really feel like that's what's happening here. Um, it's speaking to a very specific sect of that kind of religion where there's this um, intense fervor, very dramatic, over-the-top. The preachers with you know, kind of almost rock star-esque oh, yeah. ways of conducting themselves. It's like performing live exorcisms or something. Yeah, like the kind where you throw, like a where you hold up rattlesnakes. Oh. And, you know... <laughs> horrifying. Uh, faith healings. Uh, yeah. Like touching and like speaking in tongues and, and that kind of thing. And like, you know, the, Dora, before she was murdered, um, she kind of... I, it's unclear, but it, it seems like she was maybe trying to find solace in this kind of religion, which I think preys upon the weak and the poor. Well, I think a big thing, too, with uh, Dora, right? Is yeah. It's like, we really don't get that specific of details 
around her life. I mean, you kind of know what she's up. But, well, I guess let me freeze it. We don't really get like a feel for her emotionally as a person. Kinda no. Like um, you pointed out, just like the tried and true formula of like starting like a crime show off with like the murder of like I guess specifically like a girl with like uh, Twin Peaks and the killing which Nick, whatever his name is, came from. He was a writer on right. the show, right? Yeah. Okay. But like the difference on this one is like those other shows is like oh this is like tragic. A uh, high school girl dies, a young girl dies, like good family or whatever. But this is like a prostitute, maybe. She has like a pretty checkered past. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, a lot of serial killers and murderers in general target prostitutes because they know... They can get close to them. Right. It's easy to get close to them, um, to get alone with them. And also, they're not going to be missed the same way. Right. And they're not, And the police aren't going to follow up on their murders the same way. There tends to be a lot of apathy for people in, yeah. you know, the the money for sex world. Like, and I don't, and I think it's, you know, sometimes like if you have a certain appetite for quaaludes, though, you may be more prone to investigate this type of murder. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like a catch twenty two because uh, there definitely is like kind of a a movement among the true crime aficionados out there to stop labeling murder victims as prostitutes because it kind of reduces the victim to just that kind of this faceless nameless well i can get behind that movement but here's the issue and i i i agree that people maybe need to reevaluate their opinions on prostitutes and you know kind of their level of um empathy towards them but I think in distinguishing like what type of person the serial killer might be and creating a profile and understanding their process in hopes to try to catch them, you can't just gloss over the fact that they're murdering prostitutes. That's part of their MO. Right. That's part of what they're doing. And I, and if we're talking like true, just like true crime entertainment, like if it's a, tv show or a podcast that's one thing because obviously the people listening it to it aren't the people working the case but so i mean i I get i get in that sense maybe you want to just say well he murdered eight women instead of he murdered eight prostitutes but i i I do think sometimes there's this you know uh, tendency to just want to gloss over the fact that these were specific people that did a specific thing that this person targeted or whatever and right. i think that that can be like an important thing in trying to figure out the case or figure out something about the killer um but i, I want to say too about the religion thing like something about it being like the deep south too, like louisiana it it just feels like of another generation like it just feels like not with the times it's like creepy to me like that uh Instead of like counties, it's parishes. I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't sit right. Yeah, there's something uniquely Louisiana especially, about this whole show. And then, especially when they get to the point where they're talking about like the post Katrina era of just like kind of like crime being like rampant, like people just kind of like doing whatever. Like it's weird to think that this was ha- like in America. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to note that. Hurricane Andrew from, you know, the mid-90s is referenced during a lot of the 95 stuff. And then 
present day, the Katrina stuff. So yeah. it's kind of like this cycle. So like this aftermath of destruction. And we'll find out that the per- you know the perpetrator may have used Katrina as a way to really go to town on some unsuspecting yeah, it's people. Yeah, like feeding frenzy. There's a scene early on where Hart and Cole are kind of taking those little uh, twig latticework symbols around and, you know, they're asking about them, trying to f- figure it out. And there's a part where the Reverend talks about uh, these things and refers to them as devil nets. And he says that there's something... Like, for oh, the ch- yeah, we put them up by babies' cribs. <laughs> well, there's something for the children to do to keep them busy, tell them stories why they're trying, why they're tying sticks together. And while he's saying this, the camera focuses on a cross made of two sticks tied together. And it kind of implies, like, in a weird way, like, religion as distraction. And I think that's kind of like a recurring theme in this. Um, yeah. Using the religion to hide uh, the true nature of some of these, you know, people. Well, it's like, yeah, and it's like, speaking of like that uh, reverend dude, it's like, you've got Russ kind of the ever-preaching, like, pessimist, just always a, a cynic about everything. It's like, when he first sees the reverend, like, preaching in kind of the way you described, uh, and, like, people are, like, digging it or whatever, he's just, like you know, shaking his head at it like, oh, any guy with, like, confidence can inspire this sort of reaction. Yeah, I mean, part of the early dynamic of the show, obviously, is the difference between uh, Hart and Cole. And Cole is, like, just uh, pessimistic. um, But he feels that he sees the world with clarity. And a lot of people are delusional. Yes. And they're clouded by their emotional wants yeah he's highly intelligent but he's unable to really relate to yeah anyone. he can't connect with normal people anymore it seems whereas Hart, on the other hand kind of sees himself as like more of an everyman family man yeah kind of guy you know put up the fence go for a little extracurricular activity after drinks at night yeah and the relationship between uh cole and Hart kind of is one of the more entertaining aspects of the show like they kind of ha- have this clashing yeah uh, personality heart doesn't find cole to be particularly all that fun <laughs> or have you know a great sense of humor but i guess like one of the big things is uh at, at some point it seems like cole was more normal before this like horrible thing happened in his life at least you assume that he was because he was married yeah he used to be married and he had a uh, daughter and she was killed in a car accident. Which and that seems get... to be like the event that spurred this kind of... Downward spiral. Yeah, this kind of negative attitude kind of about life and humanity in general. But he, So he's constantly kind of like just spewing this, I don't know, almost nonsense, but it like makes sense. But Hart is just like, dude, can just you... Just be normal. Yeah, can you just have like a normal <laughs> interaction? But... A lot it was said and is said and should have been said about McConaughey's like unbelievable performance in this show. But the second time watching it through, I found uh, Woody Harrelson's performance to just be like so watchable. Like <laughs> it's so funny in like a lot of these scenes, and he almost has like a McNulty level 
like charm to his despicable drunken behavior. Yeah, I mean, kinda Cole like is kind of like this one note, and he's kind of very consistent throughout the show, whether it's 1995 or 2012, or even like the 2002 flashbacks, which kind of come later. He's kind of very much the same. Um, his personality traits kind of get amplified more in 2012, yeah. but he's still kind of saying the same things, right. except it's just he's lost any trace of a filter yeah. which he used to kind of have at least in terms of his appearance and which stuff like that cole does bad stuff and has done bad stuff in the past but at the same time he's very critical and almost judgmental of anyone else doing well the hypocrisy of men um kind of plays a big factor in this and i think one of the important interactions very early on in the show's run um happens um Marty is kind of feeling some guilt over some of his personal choices and his personal lifestyle, which we'll get to in a minute. And he kind of starts posing these questions to Cole where it's kind of clear that he's not necessarily just talking about Cole. He's kind of fishing for answers that may, he may kind of reflect back on himself. And he asks Cole if he considers himself a bad man and Cole gives the response of basically the world needs bad men yeah well first he's like absolutely (laughs) (laughs) he's like yeah the world needs bad men we keep the other bad men from the door and I think uh, watching this through the second time it, it, it becomes even more clear how just prescient is that a word I don't know that 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 line is it um it kind of summarizes the whole deal here. Um, Cole and Hart are flawed men, and they will prove that over and over again throughout the eight episodes in a lot of different ways. However, I think one of the statements the show is trying to make is that it takes flawed men, bad men, quote-unquote, to fight the real monsters in the world. Well, it's kind of like this. It's actually related to something that I heard someone talk about before. And I guess this might relate to something that we're going to talk about later, but the idea of like politicians and like, it seems like, you know, politicians are, can be pretty scummy people and do kind of a lot of shady things. But like, it's also this idea of like, you need people with that ability to kind of like, I guess, get things done. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing about how if a sociopath doesn't have homicidal urges and doesn't become a murderer... They often become kind of the titans of industry, uh, the CEOs of companies, because it takes this kind of ruthless nature to succeed. Compassionless. And this is, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a play on that where it takes kind of a dark figure to get into the mind of some of the world's, you know, worst monsters. And I guess that's Uh, the type of people that would ritually sacrifice a human being and leave her. For display in a field and cole like very much knows who he is he's very self-aware Hart has a little bit more denial about his like inner monster in fact even in the future he'll retroactively try to explain away his bad behavior in this well you can't take this stuff home you got to decompress you got to find your outs you got to find your releases where you can get them yeah, and and that's definitely a justification for his um, 
you know, crimes and misdemeanors when it comes to his marriage, but in a way, he's not totally wrong, and I think right. that also kind of plays into what we're talking about with, like, the bad men. Like, he has to go to a dark place to be able to deal with some of the shit that he has to see. Right. Because it's one thing to watch a television show where they find a woman in a field with a crown of antler antlers and a spiral drawn on her back and all this weird shit hanging around her but it's quite another thing if that was your real life was to come to that scene and then try to figure this out right you kind of have to face the reality that this actually happens yeah and i'm not making excuses for heart i I mean mean, the smell alone how do you recover (laughs) well i mean how long was she out there i don't know um (laughs) yeah and heart's family life kind of takes a beating throughout this show and I I, I think you know this case in particular kind of accelerates that uh, descent I don't blame the murder of Dora Lang and the subsequent investigation for everything because you kind of get the impression that Hart has probably cheated on his wife before and is probably not a great husband and father all the time in general, yeah, but very disinterested in his family at times. Yes. Uh, he's married to, uh, Maggie played by the incomparable Michelle Monaghan. Oh yeah. Um, he has two daughters. Um, I don't recall the youngest daughter's name. Mm. The oldest was Audrey who she becomes kind of a factor, uh, as the story progresses a little bit. Hart's family is more than just like an afterthought on oh, the show. It's right. definitely, they get a lot of screen time. Yeah, it becomes an important part of the narrative, um, his home life. And his marriage is definitely strained. Hart kind of has this thing. Uh, it's like other people seeing him as a family man is like important to him almost. And, and like, Well, yeah, you, what you're saying is, is good, but it goes further than that. His right. perception... The, he's c- very concerned about his perception oh, yeah. in all facets. I right. Believe. Well, it almost seems like it's p- possible that he only became a cop for power and perception. Possibly, the- yeah. Um, there's a scene uh, in one of the episodes where he is talking to some police buddies and he's recounting a story oh. of fucking like a college girl or something and then her roommate coming home and sticking a finger in her ass (laughs) and it becomes like a humorous thing about well how he always needed that done to him from then on yeah it's like ha 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 like great story blah blah blah. and there's kind of this look on his face afterwards it's it's almost like he's unhappy with himself for feeling the need to have to even tell a story like that yeah for approval and um, for the yucks and the pats on the back. Right. But I think he, he looks at Cole, too, and he's like, Whew, this could be like what my life is without family, and it's like pretty bleak. I mean, I don't know. I just think like for a, a long time, he, he would live in fear of like... In fact, he comments on the idea of like after a certain age, a uh, man without a family can become like a pretty weird thing. As, you know, certain members of this podcast yeah, can attest well, to. <laughs> yeah, I think what he's speaking to is kind of the idea that a man left to his own devices with, uh, especially no boundaries. in their dark line of work. Because, right. he, he, you know, he often references uh, 
Cole sitting alone in his room masturbating to murder manuals oh, yeah. and stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like really just going down this dark path of <laughs> yeah. like, you know, get, kind of like what I was talking about, but about the bad men and, you know, being like sucked deeper into like that mindset right. of what it would take to understand these criminals and find them and and whatnot. And of course, you know, Hart's... Uh, yeah, Cole could really use like a couple of healthy hobbies. <laughs> I don't know that he's, you know, sitting down by the TV to watch the game on a Sunday or something. Yeah, his uh, apartment is a bleak scene, oh, yeah. <laughs> to be sure. Right. So Hart's uh, issues, his uh, family issues are kind of uh, highlighted by his uh, extramarital activity with a young, busty <laughs> court re- uh, reporter, Just like a stenographer. Unbelievable. <laughs> Lisa, played by... The most beautiful woman in the history of forever, oh. Alexandra Daddario. Possibly the queen of the universe. <laughs> I don't think there's any quite possibly uh, about it. Uh, so we were talking about this the other day, and I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure she makes an appearance in the first episode. Because I remember, I now I actually remember, I right before I saw this, I just watched that episode of It's Always Sunny that she's on where Charlie like dates her. Right. And that's how I knew she was from those Percy Jackson movies, because I was like, who is this chick? And I like wikipedia right and then i saw her in that episode and i was like oh that's weird that this chick just makes this brief appearance at episode one only to you know <laughs> make a much more impactful appearance in episode two yeah i actually when i saw this i did i did not know who she was i had not seen the percy jackson movies um i didn't really start watching uh it's always sunny till much later not that I, I would have necessarily remembered her from that. I don't know. Right. Who knows? But um, yeah. Uh, so we get a little bit of a tease of something. There's more than a little bit of a glance between them in episode one. And right. Then episode two kind of confirms what we already suspected. <laughs> Full on confirming. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I think it's the greatest nude scene ever in anything. At least in my opinion, that I know of. I mean, it is just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I try not to just be like a yes man on this show, and I try to have opinions too, but it's like, how can I argue with that? I mean, and I'm, and like I said, I'm coming from it from the perspective of not knowing who she was. I I could tell by Reddit and other internet places' reactions at the time that people did know who she was, and this was, like, an unbelievable thing that had just occurred. <laughs> like, people could not wrap their minds oh, around yeah. this happening. Like, it was, like, a holy fuck moment. Right. This is, like, the 2014 version of Phoebe Cates coming out of the pool in Fast Times oh, and yeah. popping that bikini top off. Like, this is just, like, holy shit. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, we're mean, talking, just- like, full nudity in this including like bush i mean if you have i mean just like true whoa yeah i mean if you have appreciation for just pure beauty (laughs) (laughs) i mean good lord yeah and i mean you know we're definitely like creeps and really are fixating on like nudity and hot chicks probably more than we should but like it's an important thing in movies and shows yeah i definitely think that nudity in something like this is important. <laughs> I mean, it really just keeps you engaged. It it's moves just, the needle. Yeah, I mean, 
I think like this is what separates HBO from like regular TV. It's just like they're gonna give you the nudity and violence and profanity that you deserve, <laughs> that you expect <laughs> and deserve. Yeah, and I mean, <sighs> although it's like uh, with this Alexandra Daddario character, it's like I was telling you, I was listening to that this True Detective uh, podcast of two females that were doing it and they were good and analytical and breaking down every scene but when they were got to this and they were going over it they were describing alexander daddario as like this strong female in the sense it's like oh i'm not like being dragged around by your bullshit like you're married i'm not gonna wait around for you like like laying that all out there for me i'm like well yeah that's good but i mean you can't really gloss over the fact that she's banging a married man though yeah, I mean, they're both at fault. Right. I think, like, sometimes the feminist pushback on that would be that in the, you know, in the old patriarchal society kind of thing, that it's blaming the woman as a homewrecker and not enough blame right. on the man. Oh, but, not taking him out of the blame. For right. Sure. They're both to blame for this. Right. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I do appreciate Woody Harrelson, or I mean, Marty, he's just, like, yeah. trying to bury his face in oh, her ass well, yeah, at right least at, twice. Yeah. Having I mean, just going full, really having his cake and eating it too. <laughs> and as he says, "What's what? What good is cake if you're not going to eat it?" <laughs> yeah, um, but I, mean, I don't know. It's it is like it's like this, and there's like that scene in in Girls. It's like ass eating has really gone mainstream in why the last couple it? years. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I was Woody Harrelson, I'd be like, we need to do... I would keep messing it up and just be like, we need to do this again. (laughs) Can I get one more take? I need one for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, props to Daddario for going full force on that. In episode three, then, we kind of get, like, some more of Marty's hypocrisy. Um, Which, oh, and, like, another weird thing, like, Cole, this just, like, can't be, like, normal... It's like Marty walks in like the next day after this like hookup and Cole's just like, oh, you smell like pussy or something. (laughs) Yeah. And he knows, (laughs) I mean, he knows that Marty screwed around and like. Oh, but yeah, he goes, oh, so that's what Maggie smells like or something. (laughs) Right. Doesn't he say something? Well, yeah. No, I don't know if he says that. Oh, I thought he said something like pretty like in your face. It's like, what? Well, yeah. I don't know. There's kind of a weird thing about like. Woody Harrelson gets pissed. He's like, "How would you know what my wife's pussy smells right, like?" Right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then like you know, this relationship is you know obviously doomed from the start. I mean, uh, Marty's not gonna get a divorce, but um, you know, Lisa wants to, you know, find a husband. Yeah. and she wants to date for real, and then of course, you know, she ends up being somewhere whenever Marty's out with his wife and Rust and a woman they're trying to set up Rust with. Oh, and, right. And, you know, it leads to Marty drunkenly crashing into her apartment and accosting this guy. <laughs> and I mean... Just an insane scene. Yeah, he made. just... This rage, uh, uncontrollable. Right. And, like, this kind of, like, violence... And we'll see some additional violence later in the series from uh, Marty's character is it kind of speaks to this hypocrisy because I mean they're supposed to be on the side of good and yet he's acting insane oh right. he's cheating on his in wife like hiding he's 
drinking and driving over to her house. Oh, and trying to like hide behind the badge and stuff too, in the sense that she's like, Marty, get out of here, I'll call the cops. And he like pulls out his badge or whatever. He's like, Yeah, see how that goes or, so, or maybe he doesn't pull out his badge, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what well, I mean. Well he's th- he does he does like shove the badge in the dude's Oh, face. right, right. Yeah. That's what it is, yeah. So a lot's going on, and then you know it all, it eventually all comes crashing thing. down around him. Which can you imagine being like that chick uh, that they're trying to set up with Rust? It's like she's like, oh, so what are your interests? It's like, well, uh, reading up on uh, satanic cults, uh, <laughs> just generally Murder. disliking the world. <laughs> all the while, you know, while she's their like, oh, personal lives edgy. are you know happening, they're trying to work this case um, since. It's obvious. It, it's pretty obvious to Cole that this is not the work of a first timer. Oh, I think right. if you um, know a little bit about serial killing and that kind of whole thing, uh, you understand that sometimes the first murder for these killers isn't their full their full process hasn't been developed yet. Right. Like they don't go all in right away. Like it's a kind of a process to get to that. And yeah. That, you got to th- build yourself up. And I think that plays into it. Um, whether or not it's a cult or one man or whatever, whatever they're looking for. And so they've, you know, they're, they're trying to find other cases and try to, you know, piece together, uh, what, you know, who this might be, by searching through all their fi- all the files for anything that might resemble this, they happen to focus on the disappearance of a small child. I think she's supposed to be like, what, 10, 12 at the most? Yeah, I don't know. Not very old, uh, named Marie Fontenot. Um, they also come across another child who just describes fleeing through the woods from a green-eared spaghetti monster. Um and they start trying to like tie all of these things together. They kind of start seeing some similarities in the cases. Some names keep kind of coming up in tangential ways to these things. Right. Um, a specific description. Yeah, a description of some people. I don't know. I don't know if they quite get to the scar thing yet. Um, that takes a little bit of time because mm-hmm. they, well, that's when they go to the revival church is when the first time they hear the description of a tall man with the shiny skin around his chin and neck, oh, or yeah. whatever, which is their way of describing the scars, the disappearance of Marie Fontenot. And then this green eared spaghetti monster keep kind of remain a part of the story throughout. They kind of deter, you know, they, they know that they're, looking for someone who kind of has killed before Dorlang and will likely continue to do so. Oh, right. When they go to Marie's, is it her mom's house or whatever, where they find the thing that connects? Right. Um, yes. Uh, the another the one Devil's those, Nests, or right, Nets, what, as Blair they're Witch called, the, uh, <laughs> the Blair Witch triangles the tied together um, sticks those well, those appear at like marie fontenot's house what what leads them out to that uh weird uh hillbilly bunny ranch as russ describes it because they go there fairly early um they show it's, her they show her picture uh Dorlang's picture around to other prostitutes and they kind of get a lead through that um girl that sells the drugs to call oh, right right um, um and so when they get out to this like bunny ranch where I guess Dora used to work, there's like this uh young girl working there who Hart is just like horrified 
Yeah, she's underage. Right. And uh, which is like, I don't know, I guess his like weird way, the weird way he like looks at women. I don't know. It's just like he's like horrible, but sees this as like a horrible thing. Right. And he off, you know, he hands her like a wad of cash, which is like probably like 40 bucks. And it's like, do something else. It's like, I can get this for a hand job. Yeah. Um, and of course, Cole quips, is that a down payment? <laughs> Which, I mean, obviously, if you've seen the show, it turns out to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they also, this is where they collect, like, Dora's uh, diary, which kind of has, like, some of the first references to the Yellow oh, King yeah, yeah, and yeah. Carcosa, um, which we'll talk more about right. in part two. But it's all starting to become just, like, a whirlwind of these weird things all coming together. Yeah, and uh, they find a spray-painted mural that repre- that kind of closely resembles like the crime scene and that leads them you know to the church revival tent where they first hear about the tall man with the scars and you know that will kind of become a recurring uh description um, right and they're kind of connecting it with like the spaghetti monster and all this other stuff and it's kind of becomes clear you know after not after maybe like a, the first couple episodes, uh, we're talking about something big here. Yeah, um, the pieces are starting to point in the direction of you know multiple people, right? Uh, p- possible cover-ups. We're not sure where this is going, um, and they're getting some pressure at work. Um, a prominent reverend in the state of Louisiana, uh, Billy Lee Tuttle. Yeah, he. Um, one of shows titles. up with a special task force that wants to take over this right. almost right away. Pretty, pretty much, early. Which is yeah, strange. It doesn't really make sense to them. To yeah, the he's kind of so. putting it out there as this is an attack on Christianity. This is akin to a hate crime. I don't understand how that makes sense since this was a prostitute. Right. But I guess any kind of devil worship, saint worship kind of sacrifice kind of thing, I guess, could be seen as that. So they know that the like the pressure's on, but they're gonna work the case. Yeah, you know, they're kind of they're not gonna fight short, off. take any shortcuts right. here. They're still gonna do the footwork and travel out to all these like distant places, which are in like the shittiest oh, fucking yeah. bayous and oh, marshes. I know. And that's and, a, there's like certain scenes where it's like they're going out to people's houses that basically like live on. I was like, this is basically like Waterworld. Yeah, these people are living in. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, pretty much like they're. Going to, like, old abandoned schoolhouses. It's just, like, a desolate amalgam of <laughs> like nothingness. Um, so, like, one of the things that kind of comes up when looking at the show as a whole is this idea of, like, a collective unconscious. Cole refers to it as the psychosphere early in the show, and it's kind of the idea of, like... Being able to, like, feel your surroundings kind of like if you walk into a place and feel the evil or something. And it's kind of like the thoughts and energy and words put out there by people that kind of create, like, the way that the universe is. Like, how it feels, how it goes or whatever. And the Um, idea is, like, this our cults attempt to kind of galvanize all of that into yeah it's possible or, or shift it to be dark yeah it's possible that you could interpret this as like a public statement 
of murder that this person or persons who committed this crime obviously wanted it to be found they wanted their work to be seen and at that point that that's almost definitely true that's not really like an interpretation when you pose somebody in that kind of way and have all of those things around it and symbols and horns and all that shit it's not like you just do that for no reason i mean that is your statement as a killer or killers and now why they do that might be unclear but um i think you could interpret various things throughout the show as they're doing that to influence the psychosphere in a way that kind of um degrades society sends society on a descent into madness and that's something that we're going to talk about a lot more in part two um but cole is very tuned into that right he can taste the aluminum and ash in the air when they are at dora lang's crime scene that will come up again later in the show in 2012 he's smoking cigarettes ash and drinking beer out of aluminum cans it seems kind of like a weird juxtaposition to have him say that and then cut to this even his name with those two terms rust coal aluminum ash yeah 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 well i think in part two when we get there uh we're gonna definitely examine that almost and we're not gonna have time we could do like a yeah. ten part series to go through everything, yeah, I guess but we should be almost clear. everything in the show, right, is not an accident. Yeah, the names, things people say, right, etc. And I guess we should be clear that we're not uh, fully trying to go through each bit of the plot and uh, analyze it and explain how it all fits in. We're just trying to like touch on some key things, stuff that stands out to us. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be like a futile endeavor with a know, show right. like this. It's so elaborate. <laughs> it's kind of hard to even go through the plot of one episode, let right. alone eight. Totally. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we're going to get into more of um, more of these kind of theories and like um, kind of some interpretations and and some more stuff like that as we go. I would say like... Uh, if you started listening to this episode and you hadn't seen True Detective and you're on the fence, maybe you want to like, you know, jump in if you have HBO, get on HBO yeah. Go or on demand or whatever and watch it. Because um, I think it'll, you know, the great thing about a show like this is there can be a million interpretations and they can all seem convincing. Right, right. <laughs> uh, it, it just, it's it whatever was, one you've read most recently sticks out in your mind probably. Right, it's, it was one of those shows that was like so weird and it inspired like so many theories along the way as like, you know, popular kind of weird shows do. But it's like, that's the thing, it's like, there's these scenes that seem important, but then they might not play into the plot, but they are still important for like the themes that the show is trying to express. Yeah, and obviously a lot of that has to do with uh, Marty's family. Um, you know, is there some connection directly to um, the case itself or not? Um, or is it just, you know, part of like the overall mood and 
feeling of the show does it just contribute to that i mean that's kind of like something that's still debated yeah and it depends on which theories you want to read or whatever and i think you know that that's what kind of separates this show from just like the normal uh television fair i mean it's 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 got like a depth to it that you know most shows can't even come close to well yeah and i mean just building this story that plays out over the course of however many years and we see it broken up into parts and you're also being told from the future and the past so as it's going along you're you're getting clued in on these things that happen and you're like well how did we get to here and the way that it all plays out is always compelling and it kind of wraps up like pretty nicely to the point where you're like oh okay yeah yeah i mean on paper at least in my mind the idea of going back and forth between 1995 and 2012 kind of doesn't seem like it would be that good of an idea. Um, it seems like it would kind of be like a cheesy trick to use, but it, they do it very effectively. Right. They kind of reveal what they need to reveal and they reveal it in an order that helps maintain the intensity of the story, despite the fact that, what's happening in 95 you already know that cole and hart have made it that far but it still keeps what's going on in 95 interesting right totally and kind of exciting so that we'll wrap up now uh part one um you know part two i think we'll try to get it up in less than a week yeah we'll move the plot forward a little bit more in part two and talk about some other stuff and then probably wrap up the the story in part three and talk about some other stuff in that so there you have it there's the big announcement (laughs) two more parts coming on this right as always you know thanks for listening uh you can follow the show on twitter at greatest pod um we are on itunes you can subscribe the normal way search for us the normal way i know when we first started we weren't on itunes you had to go to Podbean, the whole deal you don't have to do that to subscribe anymore it's great. We're like a real podcast. Yeah, well, kind of. And you can rate and review on there as well. It's kind of sad news to pass along. Um, when we post this episode, the Halloween 3 <laughs> are probably... Our prized our, episode. Our peak pinnacle moment. <laughs> <laughs> now 20 episodes past that. <laughs> that will now officially be out of our iTunes feed because our podcast only allows us... 20 episodes at a time on the iTunes feed. However, you can go to greatestmoments.podbean.com and find all of our old episodes, uh, all 34 of them now. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and keep uh, listening because we could peak again. Yeah. There could be another pinnacle. You never at know. Any time. Right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, stay tuned for the big uh, month of October party that we're going to have. Oh, yeah. In fact, it may even get kicked off a little bit beforehand. You'll know right away because the theme music will be different at the beginning of the show. It's yeah, going to be a whole gonna be like, special thing. Oh, I thought thing. this was Greatest Moments. Uh, what is this show? All right, so that'll do it. And uh, look for uh, part two in a couple of days. See ya. See ya.